appreciate your interest being here. We're talking about a subject that is far beyond my ability to adequately discuss, and that is Jesus, our Advocate. Every Christian realizes that there are basically three considerations about sin that he must think about and relate to. Number one, when we were saved in obedience to Christ, our sins in the past were forgiven, and we were put out of the sinning business. God intended that. He intended that when we were saved, that would be the end of our love for and our involvement in sin. But the second thought is, every one of us, in spite of all of our forgiveness, in spite of the fact that we have been obedient in Christ, there are occasions wherein we sin against God. It may be a private sin that is known only in our hearts and in the mind of God, or it may be a public sin in which case it is even more serious because it may lead others to engage in that sin. But we know it's there. We may not need to admit it to anyone other than God, but we know it's there. And on occasion we fall victim to it, and sometimes... We fall victim to the same mistake and sin again. And so the third consideration is, in view of the awareness of sin in our lives, how are we going to be made right with God again? How is that going to occur? Have we, by recognizing our failures and sins. Have we brought about a situation wherein we can never be right with God again? Would that not be a tragedy of all tragedies? This problem prompted many in centuries past to put off their baptism until the last few days of their lives. They were afraid that they would sin, and by such sinning would forfeit eternal salvation. And so they would wait until just a few weeks, if possible, or a few days even, before death, and do their dead-level best not to make a single mistake well, we can admire that attitude, but the reality is that's not the will of God. 
So we are confronted with a truth, not only the fact of sin, but a heartfelt, genuine desire for a means of being forgiven. And in this little reading of 1 John 2, John discusses that. And what a glorious thought it is that we have not lost the love of God because we've sinned. That's a remarkable thing to think about. What a blessing it is to be loved by somebody in this world that assures us that however far we may stray, you will still be loved. I have felt that in my life from the earliest time until this moment. When I was fortunate to have both father and mother, dad's been dead now since 1988, I knew that no matter what I did, they would still love me. My mother, 90 years old in January, still loves me. I got sick a few years ago and had to go to the hospital. She called up one of my sisters that I need you to take me to Nashville. Well, I came for this reason. Called another sister. I can't for this reason. Third sister. Can't call, can't go for this reason. She called them all back and said, that's fine. That's fine. You can't help me. I've helped you since the day you were born. It's all right. But I'm going to Nashville. I'm calling a taxi and asking him to drive me to Nashville. They said, Mama, that's silly. She said, I don't care if it's silly. I've got the money and I'm going. They readjusted the schedule. And she came. I've known that in my life. I've known the love of a virtuous woman for now on 50 years. I've known the love of my children, grandchildren. And I'm old enough now to realize what a blessing it is not only to love, but be loved. And especially with that kind of love we're talking about that says and means, oh, I know you're going to mess up, but I'm still going to love you. In this section, John discusses this matter at some length, very, very simply, but very profound. Number one, there's this admonition. My little children, these things write I unto you, that ye sin not that ye 
sin not. That's the admonition. There is what may be called the ideal will of God. That is, his will that sets before us the ideal, the standard, what he intends for us to know and be and do. And that's the admonition here. That we not only do not sin, but we continue with that resolve. This is what John sets before us. Notice it has to do with the written word. These things write I unto you. There is a power in the written word of God. And in this passage, it has to do with giving the admonition not to sin. David said, Thy word have I hidden in my heart, that I might not sin against thee. Word in heart, not sin against thee. In Matthew 4, in response to the temptation of Satan, Jesus said, It is written, it is written again, it is written. There is then the intrinsic power in the written word of God to so mold and shape and guide the heart of the Christian that he or she is not in the sinning business. It's interesting that the tense here in the New Testament points to that very idea, not sin at all. That's God's admonition. Secondly, there is the advocate, what I would call the Provisional will of God. Provisional will of God. That's a mark of God's grace. He knows our weakness. He knows our limitations. And He knows, for lack of a better word, our just downright stubbornness on occasion. Well, what is He to do about that? Well, he makes provision, and that provision has to do with our advocate. And if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous, an advocate, someone that stands in our behalf and stands for our interest. And whatever we've done, when we are compliant with the teaching of Scripture, we have an advocate with the Father. Someone that will stand up 
and speech when we know we don't deserve it. Now, the word advocate has to do with an attorney that represents our interests. Sometimes we don't really know what we need to know for our own well-being. It may be a medical problem, maybe a legal problem, but we need the help of somebody who has skill and competence and is willing to put that skill and competence for our benefit. Well, Jesus does that. We read, Who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died, yea, rather, that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, who also maketh intercession for us. Romans 8.34 Wherefore he is able to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by him, seeing he ever liveth to make intercession for them. The advocate, the one who makes intercession. I do not begin to know the details of what occurs there. What happens is beyond my ability to grasp. But I can avail myself of that. And Jesus is at the right hand of God and there makes intercession in our interest, in our behalf, even in the awareness of our sins. Now that is more and more, for me, a compelling thought. That in spite of sin, Jesus is there to represent us, to stand for us, and make a plea in our behalf. In one of his books, F.F. Bruce talks about what Jesus said to Peter. I have prayed for you that your faith fail not. Luke 22 and 32. And he says, this is the nearest we have of an explicit statement of what it is to have Christ as our intercessor and as our advocate. Yes, Peter, you have struggled with your faith. You have failed at a crucial point. Satan desires you. Your faith will be tested. But I'll pray for you. I'll pray for you. And when you are strengthened, forgiven, when you are able to work again with the people of God, I still need you. Imagine then that we have sinned and Jesus is our advocate. Guy Wood said, An advocate is a lawyer or attorney 
whose function it is to represent one in court. Jesus thus represents us in the court of heaven, pleading our cause and advocating our cause before the bar of God's justice. As our advocate, he is with the Father, thus at his side, and ever-present to afford us adequate and constant representation. Number three, the atonement. How can this be? How can I be represented before God and be forgiven? Be forgiven. Well, there is the atonement or propitiation. He is the propitiation for our sin. That's a big word. It's a remarkable word. God is of such nature that he cannot allow sin to be a part of himself. And he cannot ignore sin. Now that confronts, if you will, God with a serious need. How is love of the sinner. How is it going to operate so that sin is not acceptable to God and that man is yet to be forgiven? Well, the word that is used here has to do with that. God accepts the atoning blood of Jesus Christ as the means by which the plea of Christ in our behalf is acceptable. Brother Black noted the example of the boy who had suffered a loss, yet taking the punishment for the one who had done the wrong. That's hard for us to grasp. I read somewhere that those who mock at scars have never felt a wound. And that's true. There are some things that we just simply don't understand until we experience them. Well, Jesus experienced all that man will ever experience through temptation. Yet, the Hebrew writer says, without sin. And by the blood, the meritorious blood of Christ, through the goodness, the grace, the mercy of God, there is an advocacy, there is a propitiation and atoning, whereby we are brought back into a right and proper relationship with God. Frankly, that transcends my ability to understand. And the older I get, the more I don't understand a number of things 
that I once thought I understood quite well. Because the further we experience the understanding of God's Word on such great themes, the more we realize it lies above our ability to grasp. Doesn't mean we don't avail ourselves of it, but we respond to it with the awareness how great our God is and how great His love for us is. That in spite of our sins, He still has made and continues to make provision that we may be brought back into a right relationship with Him. Number four, the awareness. The awareness. And hereby we do know that we know Him if we keep His commandment. I'll never forget the evening when Franklin Camp and I finally got around to discussing the subject of the security of the faithful child of God. It was after midnight and everybody else, I guess, had sense enough to go to sleep. Camp and I were working on Bible passages. Wonderful, wonderful occasion. We kind of tiptoed around it. And finally we decided to lay, if you will, our belief on the table of the security of the child of God, the faithful. And we were in complete fundamental agreement there. And from that day until the day of his death, Camp and I could talk about anything that we needed to talk about. There was no hesitation from that day until the end of his life. Why? Because we in those few moments that lengthened into an hour or so, finally said, we are willing to be honest with each other about what we believe. That's a great moment in my life. Well, the security of the child of God, we know that we know Him. Without being unduly technical, it is quite significant that the tense of these two verbs translated to know be understood. The first verb, we know, is a present tense verb, meaning we continue to know that. The second verb is in the perfect tense. In uh, word pictures in the New Testament, A.T. Robertson translates, we know that we have come to know and still know Him. In the past, we began to know. We began to know God not only in His existence, but in His forgiveness. And we still know that. 
we still know that he is willing and ready and able to forgive us in spite of the fact that we've sinned. And we know that. How do we know that? We know that by Bible teaching. And that Bible teaching has again and again and again been appealed to, and again and again and again, upon our true and genuine repentance, then the blood of Christ has brought about the re-cleansing of our hearts and souls. We know that. Now we know that. And we've been knowing that. How do we know that? If we keep His commandments. Keep. We keep on keeping His commandments. That means that many, many decisions have already been made. Somebody showed me a few weeks ago an article by the late Gus Nichols, in which he talked about that when he was baptized into Christ, he made a decision that every Lord's Day he would be in church. And he said, with the exception of four times in my life since, I've been at church every Lord's Day. And those occasions when I could not be there, I was so sick I could not go. And so he said, I don't have to wonder what I'm going to do on the Lord's Day. I know what I'm going to do. If I live another year, ten years, I'll be going to church. Why? I've made up my mind to keep that commandment of God. And what a profound difference that makes. It's not some kind of human merit. It is instead the genuine submission of the heart to God and His will. Now we know that that's operating in our lives. How? We keep His commandments. We don't just play at it. We don't just say, well, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. What we're doing is we are submitting as a practice in heart and life to what we know to be God's will revealed in His Word. Number five, the affirmations. What about the person that makes a claim and doesn't keep his commandments. Verse 4 says, He that saith, I know him, and keepeth not his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. Two great fundamentals. Number one, he is a liar. He has made league and covenant with Satan, who is a liar and the father of lies. I have allied myself with the devil when I begin telling lies. And John said, I affirm that. The person that says he knows God 
and does not keep his commandments is lying to himself and lying to God and, for that matter, lying to others to whom he makes profession. The second fact is the truth is not in him. That is a frightening statement. The truth is not in him. He has brought about a situation in which truth does not mold and shape his or her life. That's a terrible thing to think about. In the parable of the sower, when anyone heareth the word of the kingdom and understandeth it not, then cometh the wicked one and catcheth away that which was sown in his heart. This is he that receives seed by the wayside. Matthew 13 and 19. Two words here. That term catcheth away, or the American standard says, snatch away. That word comes from a noun that means a robber. A robber. He comes and takes something and does it under stealth, deception, whatever. But the point is he gets what he wants and takes it away. What is it that Satan wants in this instance? He wants the word out of the heart. Now, a child of God can maintain a secure lock on his heart by keeping the commandments. But when he doesn't keep the commandment, he opens the door and leaves opportunity for Satan to come and steal what has already been sold in his heart. Now, that affirmation tells us that we can never take sin for granted. We can never think, aha, Satan will not be after me anymore. I don't have to lock the door of my heart against Satan. I had an evening meal with some folk recently going to speak at a place. One of the ladies there was well into her 80s. And she said, because of things happening in this community, for the first time in my life, we started locking our doors. We're afraid. Never thought it would come in this little old town that we couldn't trust everybody. But you just can't do that anymore. I admire her trust and confidence in her neighbors. And I regret that we live in a time where we can't really trust our neighbors not to steal from us. But this point I know, we never can forget that Satan will take away, if possible, that word from our heart. Number six, the assurance. The assurance. But whoso keepeth his word in him verily is the love of God perfected. 
Hereby know that we are in him. That word perfected is a beautiful word. It means brought to its end, brought to its completeness, brought to what it was meant to be. I understand the thought of love of God here, the love that man has for God. So here, the love that the child of God has for God begins to work. It begins to shape and mold his life in the keeping of the Word of God and brings out of that individual all that his love for God is capable of bringing him to be. That means that out of a person who begins a living of the Christian life in love, in devotion to God, in keeping his commandments, God brings out of that person all that he is capable of being. And that's the love of God that is brought to its fullness. And that means that one is limited only by the talents that he has received of God. And we can see living examples of that all around us. People that have become great mothers and fathers in Israel, great elders and deacons, great teachers, Great parents, great preachers, how did it happen? It wasn't some magic shot. It wasn't some magic pill. It wasn't some abracadabra open sesame. It was the continued devotion of the heart, exploring every possibility that might develop, whereby the love of God in one's heart would be molded and shaped in the keeping of God's commandments. And there's hardly any limit that we might say cannot be reached. Now look back in your own life and think for a moment where you might be if you had not come to love God and not come to know and obey his will. Well, that assurance is there. We are moving toward letting the love of God work out in our hearts and in our lives. And then finally, the aspiration. The aspiration. He that saith he abideth in him ought himself also to walk, even as he walked. He says that he abides in Christ. Well, he aspires to something. He aspires to walk as he walked. That's what I want to be. In the back of the mind, there is the model, the image, the pattern of what I want to be. I remember in 1950, I was introduced to the study of the Greek language. 
The little book by John Huddleston I still have. And I hope by that means to be able at some point to read the Greek Testament. And so I begin. I haven't completed the desire yet. But oh my, the joy, the thrill that I have just sitting at my study desk and looking at those words and the vocabulary and the dictionary, the construction and all of that. And on occasion, I've simply had to stop and say, I cannot imagine anything that's more delightful than this. Why? I am tracing the mind of God at a depth I've never before been able to reach. And that doesn't exhaust it. Well, that all started 1950 and still going on. I haven't arrived yet. I never will. But my, has my life been enriched by those years of study. Now that in a measure is what I'm talking about here. Here's a person that aspires to walk as Jesus walked. Not to walk on the water like Jesus did, but to walk on earth as he walked on earth. Now John says, that's how you get out and stay out of the sinning business. I do not maintain that I will ever become perfect morally and sinless. Ah, uh, but in striving for it, what a change it makes in one's heart and one's life. So I commend to you a re-evaluating of what it is to have Christ as our advocate and have him guiding and molding and shaping us by his word to become all that we can be. And whether anybody else in our family or anywhere else achieves what we want to see them achieve, we can be all that we can be to follow our Lord Jesus. And John underscores that in these verses. What a joy to be with you. I hope today continues well for all of us. Thank you.